0: overnight if this tax had gone through we would see a a 73 and a half percent increase in the retail price on a 60 milliliter bottle of e-liquid. that in and of itself was going to be such a dramatic change that it
1: was going to alter consumers behavior hi i'm brent stafford and this is regwatch by regulatorwatch.com Some rare good news to share with you today. US President Joe Biden's federal vape tax appears dead on arrival, as Senate Democrats yesterday dropped the proposal from the Build Back Better Act. The question today is what happened to change your minds? And joining us today to help answer that from the Vapor Technology Association is Tony Abud, Executive Director and longtime friend of the show. Tony, thanks for coming back on RegWatch.
0: Hey Brent, thank you for having me.
1: So first off, my friend, the vape tax, is it really dead or could it come back?
0: Well, you know, people often say never say never. Um, and since this is Congress and they're always gonna be looking to raise revenue, yes, at one, one day there will be more taxes being considered, but this tax for all intents and purposes is dead. Uh, you know, it started off as a gargantuan tobacco tax it covered virtually every uh, tobacco product out there. Um, but it got winnowed down, as you as you know, to a vape-only tax, effectively, a nicotine-based per milligram tax. And that was something that, uh, obviously, just recently died its own death.
1: So what happened?
0: Well, look, <laughs> a lot happened in, 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 in the ensuing months where, from when this was proposed. But ultimately, you know, this notion that the uh, the Democrats needed to raise significant revenue in the Build Back Better bill, um, they need to find ways to do that. They've obviously always been looking to figure out a way to tax vaping uh, and tax to further tax tobacco. So um, this was their perfect opportunity since they needed to raise three trillion dollars. What? What occurred though, was that they kind of overstepped. And so there was huge pushback, particularly uh, by the tobacco companies, which ultimately got the tobacco portion of this tax stripped out of the bill. What was obviously a problem is that it left in this vape only tax and that made the bill uh, or, uh, or the provision itself, much more draconian uh, for the vape side of the industry and also much more beneficial for the tobacco side of the industry. And because of that, it actually played, I believe, into our hands in terms of the arguments that were being made. Um, Now, one of the fundamental purposes of the vape tax has always been this supposed need to um, equalize the taxes, to create parity between the taxes. And this bill um, actually thought that was what they were doing. They actually thought that imposing a twenty uh, 2.78 cents per milligram of nicotine tax on vaping products would equate to the cigarette tax. But that turned out to be dead wrong. Um, and one of the things that we did is we put together uh, and had our economists put together an analysis of that tax. And it was striking because when you look at the differential on a per unit basis, for example, you find that the tax that would be imposed upon a a standard 60 milliliter bottle of e-liquid would be almost 900% more than the tax being imposed on one pack of cigarettes. So we took this message to Congress, Brent. And one of the things that we said is, if you look at how consumers are going to uh, view their purchasing decisions, they are going to look at buying a pack of cigarettes a two pack of pods or a 60 milliliter bottle of e-liquid. We wanted to show them what the differential in the per unit cost uh, would be because that is in fact, the decision that consumers are gonna have to make. So overnight, if this tax had gone through, we would see a 73 and a half percent increase in the retail price on a 60 milliliter bottle of e-liquid that in and of itself was going to be such a dramatic change that it was going to alter consumers' behavior, especially when cigarette taxes were going to remain flat. Now, this argument was strong to begin with, but as I noted earlier, it was made even stronger once they capped the tobacco cigarette tax, because now all of a sudden, tobacco cigarettes are getting away scot-free and the differential between the taxes on cigarettes and the taxes on vaping products uh, grew to such an astronomical um, number.
1: Now there was, there seemed to be too as well quite a bit of, of a concerted effort among academics, which we've had on our show. We had Dr. Kenneth Warner on just in our last episode, and he, you know, participated uh, quite strongly in the effort. Same with Dr. Michael Pesco and others. Tell us about that.
0: Well, I think that we have always believed uh, that, that the academics, the, the public health voices are absolutely essential to any sort of discussion on, on vaping as in, in Congress and at the state level. And having those voices out there, writing and speaking so clearly on these issues is absolutely critical. So the voices that you were just talking about, Dean Emeritus, um, Warner, um, from the University of Michigan. His op-ed in the Washington Post was absolutely um, it, it critical. What, that came at a time when these issues were being hotly discussed and being uh, uh, in the back room. And he gave such striking clarity to the, the primary concerns that he has and that others share with him in the public health community, and that would be the adverse effect that this tax would have, namely that it would increase cigarette smoking. Um, And because of that, uh, it had to give legislators in Congress pause, especially those on the Democratic side of the aisle who were pushing this tax, because they are very strong in their positions of being anti-tobacco and anti-cigarette. And this argument in and of itself said, hold on folks, you are actually doing their bidding, so that worked perfectly with the numbers argument that we had put together uh, with our economists because it ju- it actually showed this differential. It showed a, a tax differential for a 60 milliliter bottle of e-liquid being nine times higher than the um, than the tax on a pack of cigarettes. So the other academics that you were mentioning, like, for example, Dr. Michael Pesco, I believe you had him on your show also, isn't that correct?
1: Yeah, just a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah, so he uh, and his research, which was NIH-funded research, we also made sure that uh, members of Congress saw that as well, uh, because his research in terms of what happens in, in 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 real time when you actually increase taxes, it that drives people to smoking. Um, that conclusion is extremely well-established, uh, and so when you have economic experts such as him, uh, and, 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 and I guess not just smoking, but also smoking amongst youth, uh, which obviously is a particular concern for everybody in this country, but when you have those two pillars of a public health expert and an economist saying, a tax on vaping products that is equal to cigarettes is the wrong approach altogether, then that drives that point home even more. And one of the other pieces that we leveraged significantly was the what I call the 15 past president's letter. It's the letter, I think you were just showing it, which talked um, about balancing considerations on e-cigarettes from the 15 past presidents for the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco. This is a remarkable piece. If everybody hasn't read it already, they should. Um, and we've encouraged every office that we've met with to if they read one thing, read this piece in SRNT. Because the and if you only read one thing out of this piece, read the conclusions of the article of, of these, academics because they are striking and they are stark and they are straight to the core issue of what is wrong with public health discussion as it relates to vaping in this country. But so we use this as a jumping off point and, and, because they speak very clearly in their article about what should be done with the tax. They said, it's okay to impose a tax on vaping. And frankly, VTA, we agree, and we proposed an alternative to Congress to give them something else to think about that wasn't an an absurd per milligram tax. Um, But they said, you impose a small, modest tax on vaping, that will achieve your objective of deterring youth, but it will not deter uh, and disincentivize people who were otherwise quitting or trying to quit from going uh, going back to uh, cigarettes. So yeah. Yeah. that, and, and, and the stark conclusions that they have in that article were absolutely essential. And we were able to speak very forcefully on this issue because these were not words coming from industry. These were words coming from public health experts from a decidedly anti-tobacco academic organization.
1: And I think our viewers would, would love to know a little bit more about that. Like, because you know, we've covered this, there's obviously everybody with inside, you know, vape media have been covering the great work from these academics, but to hear that, that stuff that these papers have made a difference. I mean, you know, are they thrown on a table? How, how do you know they made a difference?
0: Well, look, I I can't tell you they made a difference, but what I can tell you is the arguments and the messaging that we were able to present were are always going to be stronger when those arguments are coming from the mouths of academics and independent researchers who know what is true and what is false because their positioning and their motives cannot be questioned. Um, And so that's that's one of the reasons we we lean so heavily on their arguments. Plus, they dovetailed perfectly with sound policy. And it was very easy to demonstrate to um, members that we met with that there is no good policy at the core of this tax, plain and simple. There is no parity whatsoever. You are raising taxes on e-cigarettes, a less harmful product than you are imposing on the cigarettes themselves that that's that's a that is a non-starter and should be a non-starter for for anybody. You know, you are actually imposing a tax that is regressive and harmful to those that are actually working the hardest with lower incomes um uh, trying to get by in this economy that's extremely strapped. And we we were able to rely upon their arguments to say that This is a racial um, justice argument and a social justice argument, because as the 15 past presidents point out, the needs of the the members of the African American community, LGBTQ community, the needs of those people of lower incomes are not being met by this one-sided debate on vaping, which is seeking to get rid of flavors, which is seeking to get rid of vaping, which is seeking to disincentivize Uh, um, uh, everyone from using vaping products as an alternative to cigarettes. And when these academics make these stark arguments uh, about that that touch on issues of racial equity and social justice, that becomes something that resonates and has to resonate inside the camps that tend to look at these issues and raise them to the top of their list.
1: So Tony, I have a clip here from Dr. Kenneth Warner's episode of reg watch which we just released yesterday right on that topic and let's have a listen
2: so we did need to change the messaging but i don't know how to get through i mean the the u.s senate has a significant number of senators who march to the beat of the campaign for tobacco free kids it doesn't matter what they say they will support the campaign for tobacco free kids and uh, their message is do everything you can to get e cigarettes out of the hands and mouths of kids. And let's not worry about those poor adults. Now, obviously, they don't say that, but, <laughs> but implicit in their message is let's not worry about adults. And frankly, I think we have a social justice issue here. Uh, and it's one that is not widely recognized. We mention it at the end of the American Journal of Public Health article. Uh, Most smokers today, or let me say, a disproportionate number of smokers today, come from disadvantaged groups, minorities, the LGBTQ community, people who are suffering from mental health issues, ranging from depression on to others. Uh, I think that an awful lot of people who matter in our politics, the people who essentially are engaged in politics and influence politicians, don't see that smoking is a problem anymore. They're educated, they're affluent, and most of them not only don't smoke, but they don't know smokers. Their colleagues don't smoke, there's no smoking in their workplace, and there's no smoking in the restaurants and bars that they frequent. So to them, it's kind of a non-issue. A non-issue. Boy, he makes
1: a powerful argument. Yeah,
0: that—I mean—it really is a powerful argument, and uh, it is—it is so good to hear such clarity in terms of the manner in which these issues have to be discussed and the manner in which they are not being discussed. Uh, and that's what the, the core strength of this particular um, paper that was written by uh, Dr. Warner and 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 the other past presidents—they came right out and said. You guys are getting this wrong, and you're getting it wrong for so many of the constituencies that we other in any other um, context. We're doing everything we can to protect and to to assist and to defend. Um, and so, why are we doing it so differently here? Um, we felt so strongly about uh, one of those last comments that you, he he had in that clip that you just played that we included it. And one of the many missives that we sent to, uh, the, uh, to the Hill. Uh, one of the pieces that we sent to the Hill really tried to clarify and, and succinctly clarify kind of what the core issues were as it relates to um, um, the, the, the e-cigarette tax uh, right now. So the ki- top four points that we needed to make, particularly to Democrats, is that this bill was gonna make cigarettes cheaper, that it was gonna lead to an increase in smoking, it would obviously violate the president's pledge, uh, and then this last piece on racial equity. And you can see in the graphic that one of the quotes that we included was this notion that we need to pay attention to adult smokers, and that is not happening. And and the second point that we brought up was what he what what uh, Professor Warner was just talking about, it how hey. Smokers have become invisible to so many people, particularly those in power. And so that has to jade their thinking and skew their thinking about what and how they should be what they should be doing about this issue, and how they should be doing it. So um, we felt so that those comments were so compelling. We made sure they were on our short list of points. Uh, and that was, for example, a document that was distributed uh, to every key staffer uh, in every office as well as um, all the key committees on the hill uh on, on a and we were doing this on a regular basis to make sure that they saw these pieces that they saw we we did one with uh, professor warner's piece alone uh um a, as well because we thought again this is one of those things that everybody on the hill needs to read um and so we wanted to make sure we got them some concise talking points and if they wanted to read more they could read more but in, at the bottom line if they only read uh, this particular uh, submission then they would have at least taken away the significant points that were being made by uh, professor Warner and the other academics that have spoken uh, to this issue
1: and I'd like to uh, take a moment to jump into one more uh, bite that we've got prepared from dr. Warner's appearance here on reg watch it's right on the money so let's take a listen
2: the public health is actually doing harm promotion uh, in terms of smoking. I'm uh, very much afraid that the governmental administrative apparatus, FDA, with the, the its very careful scrutiny of all the e-cigarettes, uh, the public health organizations that have been pushing so hard for bans on flavors in e-cigarettes, or in some instances ban on the sale of e-cigarettes, higher taxes on e-cigarettes, Uh, This is all going to create a return to smoking for a significant number of adults. I hope it's not a large number. It's going to increase the number of smokers and that in turn, will increase the number of deaths and illnesses that we observe due to smoking. Uh, I just published uh, a week ago uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, about a very little recognized piece of the Build Back Better bill that's come out of the house. Uh, it would impose a tax on nicotine products, unconventional nicotine products, meaning e-cigarettes and pouches. Uh, That would be roughly the equivalent of the cigarette excise tax, the federal cigarette excise tax. That will increase smoking by hitting three different groups of people. So first of all, those people who have quit smoking by means of vaping If they're e-cigarettes, if they're still vaping and their e-cigarettes become much more expensive, a subset of them, and again, I hope it's a small number, are gonna revert to smoking. Uh, People who are dual users, vaping and smoking, who may well be decreasing their risk by virtue of their dual use, if cigarettes constitute a very small part of the dual use. Uh, Many of them seeing the alternative, the e-cigarettes get comparably expensive, may drop, the e-cigarettes and go back to smoking full-time. And the people who are smokers, who would have gravitated toward e-cigarettes and tried them may think that it's not worth it now that they're more expensive. They already believe they're as harmful as as smoking. We've misled the public badly into believing, a majority of the public in the US believes that e-cigarettes are as dangerous as or more dangerous than cigarette smoking. We know that's not even close to the truth. And it's tragic because it keeps smokers from moving in the direction that could save their lives.
1: Misinformation. I mean, I want to ask you about that, Tony, because like so often it appears that a lot of that misinformation is promulgated by Democrats in the Senate, and the House. So, I mean, I you know.
0: Well, part, part of the problem is that they don't know better because what they're being fed is 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 in misinformation and it's being done intentionally by the very groups that um professor Warner was was talking about and because that's the campaign that they are on and so you know we don't have the luxury of of um of being purveyors of misinformation because uh industry is is rightly chided right they should not have that luxury either because um they are doing a complete disservice to the, the community, the broader community of, of smokers and the broader community of, of, of people who are actually concerned about public health. But that's why we dug into the numbers. And, and so this, and, and where I'll take issue with, with Professor Warner and, and maybe he just slightly misspoke, but the, the intent of this tax on nicotine was to equate the taxes to cigarette taxes. But as our analysis points out, they're not even close. And, and, and there's two ways to look at that. One was the way that we looked at earlier in the chart, but there was another line in that chart which really highlighted it and said, look, if you truly believe that a per milligram, a 2.78 cents per milligram uh, of nicotine tax is the appropriate tax. If you were to apply that tax to a pack of cigarettes, then the tax on a pack of cigarettes would be much higher than what they are proposing. The tax on a pack of cigarettes should be $5.41, not $1.01. That's because very simply, there's approximately 10 milligrams per cigarette uh, and there's 20 cigarettes in a pack. So that's um, 240 milligrams in a pack of cigarettes. And so if you were to do the math the tax if you were apply, if you believe in this per milligram notion should be $5.41 not $1 uh, and 1 cent. So there's just an absurd disparity from the very beginning. And they start with this ridiculous premise of of how they calculated the actual nicotine and I believe it, at its core is some someone's belief or someone's intent to explain that this figure that they put into the bill related to a related or compared one jewel pod to a pack of cigarettes. And then they extrapolated all of their numbers from that. Um, obviously, that is not an accurate comparison. And if you really just do want to compare the milligrams of nicotine, we wanted to make sure that they knew exactly what those numbers should be. So, Uh, At the end of the day, if you want to flip that around, we said, you know, if if you really want to apply the same rationale, then, you know, the tax, what you're, what you're effectively doing is taxing cigarettes at 0.5 cents per milligram, not 2.78 cents, which is what you were taxing vaping. So they're losing both ways. The numbers actually work in our favor. Um, And that's why we wanted to make sure that as many people saw these numbers as possible. So we wanted to make sure that we got this economic negative impact report out um, uh, on top of this analysis of what kind of tax differential there was, which we had been sharing with Congress as part of our messaging Last, um, last couple of weeks, we finalized the tax impact report and we put that out because that was striking as well. You know, you have to have a lot of different messages because there are a lot of different members of Congress who uh, care about issues for different reasons. And so uh, while some people don't care about jobs and economic impact, others very much do, particularly since this is in an infrastructure bill and is designed to help the economy and help America grow and move forward. So we had the economists uh, do his analysis um, on on um, the actual impact of this tax, and the results were were were, were striking. His conclusions uh, were basically that we would lose if this tax went into effect. Um, o- almost forty three thousand jobs uh, would be lost, and those jobs uh, would also uh, result in the loss of two point two billion dollars in wages that are paid to to workers. At the same time, his calculations was that the negative economic impact on the economy would be approximately $7 billion, just over $7 billion. And one of the things he would like to point out is while the federal government is trying to raise revenue, when you pass this kind of tax, you're going to strip the states and local governments of another $620 million in revenue. So it was it was fortunate that one of the things that we worked on this year was have uh, the economist John Dunham and Associates update the economic impact study. And I believe we you and I talked about this on on a show when we first did the economic impact study in two thousand and eighteen. It was the first first true uh industry study to demonstrate the real power of the vapor industry um and we thought it was important that that get updated because so many things have changed um in the last couple years and so the numbers that you were just showing up on the screen and that they're available on our website shows what the current economic impact of this industry is so now we can look at and say hey this industry does continue to generate drought. Yeah, we've taken some hits. We've dealt with some major regulatory upheaval. Uh, We've dealt with significant taxes in some, particularly in some some states that have adversely affected um, the industry. But all in all, the industry still uh, generates over 66,000 jobs um, directly. And we throw off a total of 133,000 jobs uh, for the industry at large. Um, And overall economic output uh, for the industry itself, you can see on the chart there, we generate directly over $8 billion of economic output and $2.7 billion of wages. But The analysis goes further um, and and, and looks at what other industries do we support? What other businesses do we support? And how does that totally uh, affect the overall economy? And that's where we get to those larger numbers that shows this is still a very significant industry. Yeah, we're down from 2018, according to this study, but we're still strong and we're still larger than other industries um, in this country. uh, And we need to do everything we can to protect that going forward. But had this tax gone into effect, it would have been yet another hit um, at just the wrong time.
1: Tony, let me um, let me ask you, I mean, clearly, VTA has done a lot of work here in the last year in 2021. I know, though, some of our viewers might be wondering where you've been uh, for the last couple of years before that or a year and a half before that. You've been a bit quiet. Um, what can you say about that?
0: Well, yeah, it's really uh, it's really been a, a a challenging situation, right? So, if you if you rewind um, two years to the fall of twenty nineteen, when we were at the apex of the the fights uh, against vapor, particularly the the president's announced flavor ban, uh, the avali crisis, um, and as well as then the states that were attempting to um, ban flavors, <clears throat> supposedly trying to address. The Avali crisis, um, and then all the other state regulatory activity that was ongoing at that time. Right, uh, we had basically hit an an apex in terms of. I mean, it was the perfect storm uh, of of existential crises, um, which you, you we just you don't rarely see that. But, you know, VTA went all in, Uh, you know, we had sued the FDA in August of 2019. We, uh, once the Ivali crisis hit, we had to arm up to deal with this onslaught of public media uh, uh, attention that we had never seen before. And in terms of engaging a crisis communications firm, um, because obviously we had had public affairs uh, teams working with us, but this was a different animal once Ivali took hold, right? uh and then we had the president's announcement and with that announcement <clears throat> i mean that was that was quite quite a moment on it September 11th, right um and if you look at and i've done presentations on this before what transpired what we were able to accomplish between september 11 and november 11 in, in 60 short days it was quite remarkable um and you know at that time you know we actually had to engage obviously other you know, consultants in the industry to help kind of craft a strategy. We um, uh, obviously did uh, polling, uh, a significant poll that was conducted that ultimately, according to the Washington Post and the New York Times and uh, and other national media was key to turning the president's mind around on this issue. Um, we had to engage uh, at the same time with states, as I mentioned, uh, that were Banning flavors, and so we had we 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 filed uh, lawsuits um, uh, uh, around the country to defend the industry and to protect flavors. Um, This was a gargantuan task. Uh, I I cannot even begin to tell you just how significant it was. We had lawsuits going on in multiple states. We had a federal lawsuit uh, going on dealing with PMTA, Uh, and now we had a a, an existential Ivali crisis. Uh, going on, I mean the, the the amount of pressure that was uh, brought to bear, uh, and then at the same time we knew we had to mount a counteroffensive, and that's when we put together our uh, the the first TV ads that uh, uh, have ever been run in this yeah. industry. They were you know? great, and, and they were great. I, yeah, I thought they were really great. We had a great team, and um, and uh, I, I I I just um, I'm amazed at the work that w- was was able to be accomplished. In that short period of time, um, but to be frank with you, the the the, the year turned and um, the bills came due, and COVID hit, and money dried up. Frankly, so all of a sudden, what when we were <laughs> literally we had just succeeded in terms of finding out that the president was not going to ban flavors uh, for open systems. I mean, that was a remarkable development, right? In in January of 2020. Um and we were obviously pushing for him to not ban any flavors at all, but he clearly heard the messages that we were putting out there, which was you can't shut down, you know, almost 13,000 small businesses, right? Those that was a line that I repeated to him, you know, during that White House meeting. So I mean, and and he got that, he knew that that was something that could not be done, uh, at least on his watch. And at the same time, we gave him an alternative, which is, hey, go raise the age to vape. That's the first thing you should be doing, not not shutting down small businesses right and left in this country. So that was the, probably the biggest initiatives or a set of initiatives that I've ever been involved with, and um, I have to hand it to the the board of our organization because they said, "Let's go. We're going to do everything that we can to to fight and to defend uh, Vapor." Now we were successful in some areas. We were not
1: successful in other areas, but you so, still had you still had the bills to pay. So was it looned, uh What is it? Uh, licking your wounds, I guess, for 2020.
0: Well it wasn't even that it was really trying to stay stay alive. I mean, uh you know, like a lot of companies in 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 2020, they they were facing kind of the existential crisis of can we stay in business? What are we going to do with the fact that we have debt now and we have no new revenue coming in because what happened when the when the year turned is that People stop stop participating in the association. So um, you know, what do you do with that? We were so far out in front in fighting for flavors and, and winning on, on a number of those fights. and then all of a sudden, the revenue dries up. So we actually had to go in um, uh, I call crisis mode, where we had to rethink what we were doing. We had to come up with a way to how we were we gonna, how were we going to work ourselves out of the debt? Um, and um, we came extremely close. I'll just be candid with you, Brent, to uh, shutting down and filing for bankruptcy. I mean that—that's how significant the bills were. Just here's an example, okay? On on the legal front itself, 3.2 million dollars in litigation bills from that stems solely from EVALI causing these governors to go ahead and um, and do their flavor bans. You know, one state alone, like Massachusetts we spent $875,000. Now people are like, how oh, why would you do that? Well, litigation is really, really expensive. Second of all, in Massachusetts, we had two lawsuits that had to, uh, had to be going on at the same time. And then uh, we had a federal judge that effectively made us have two mini trials when we were trying to get our TROs. So that if you if you ever have been engaged in litigation at the trial level, and particularly with respect to TROs, it's the most expensive litigation uh, uh, procedural posture you could be in. But we did what we could uh, through that process. We lost. People were unhappy, right? That that Massachusetts's law was not struck down. So were we. But it's not for lack of trying in that example. Um, and then other states where. We had to fight. We actually won, obviously, in New York, and that was a significant victory uh, because uh, you know New York is obviously a big state, a bellwether state, um, and uh, it's you know it was particularly good because of the way Cuomo dealt with this issue um, uh, to have been able to to be successful uh, in in defeating them and stopping that uh, um, flavor ban from going into effect. That's a, that's a large market. Obviously, but when you look at, but I don't think people fully appreciate um, uh, and and maybe and nor should they. Uh, you know, the, the the types of costs that were associated with the work that needed to be done just to deal with that crisis and just to save flavors. Um, and and the burden that that put on the association, and then you have the confluence of factors where, You have COVID coming in and literally shutting everything down. Yeah. Um, So we came close, like I said, um, but we decided um, that and we had, you know, we decided that one of the worst possible outcomes, the easiest thing would have been to declare bankruptcy and walk away. Plain and simple. Um, That would have also in our minds been the worst thing to do. It would have left a bad mark uh, on the industry generally. It would have left um, a lot of people feeling, you know, negative uh, about about uh, the association um, from a uh, you know in in Congress, and we did not want to have that. So we came up with a plan to try to resolve the debt. Um, and while we were doing that, we also then had some companies decide to leave. Like it was the it was the, again the worst series of events uh, that one one could have. Um, but so, we fought through so like, it. We fought yeah, through it, it and we got to the yeah. end of the year. Uh, and we were able to, we were able to basically survive and to the goodwill of a lot of people that worked on the issues, but a goodwill of a lot of our consultants that worked with us on those, on their, their bills. Um, and, uh, we got to the end of the year and, and as you might expect, then the board was thinking, okay, what are we going to do next? We had to kind of early in 20, 21, figure out okay, we made it, we survived. Now what? And so we we've retrenched clearly, right? And uh, so we don't have a big PR machine going, but we we are still active, we're still engaged. We have lobbyists on the Hill, and we decided that we knew this tax was coming, this was going to be a major issue for us to address. Obviously, we're gonna we wanted to uh, companies were now solely focused on getting their PMTAs filed. Uh, we had obviously, you know, pushed FDA to extend deadlines um, throughout 2020, and um, you know we were watching what was happening with respect to FDA as well. And then when we saw the MDOS come down or start to come down, um, you know, we, one of the things we did was was uh, we wrote directly to FDA um, in mid September and said, "What we see happening is wrong. It has to be." It seems to be driven by political act, act uh, considerations. Certainly is not consistent with what FDA has been doing in the past. And the manner in which it, as early as, as recently as June, um, uh, that you, you, the manner in which you said you were gonna be reviewing PMTAs. And, uh, and, and we put it right there in black and white. And we told them, look, this appears to be politically motivated because of the haranguing that the acting commissioner had on June 23, in front of uh, representative Krishnamurthy's uh oversight subcommittee uh and said so that's the only thing that's changed since uh in the, in the last few months and it's pretty it's pretty clear to me now uh brent what's happened or what what happened in uh in in leading up to these
1: mdos um and i think that and just for everybody who you know not everybody actually knows what the mdos yeah, it's is. Right. It's, a, it's that's okay it's a it's a marketing Denial order. So basically it's the denial of the PMTA, which is the authorization that these companies would need to keep their vaping products on the market.
0: Yeah. And um, so look, if you just look at the, the the trail of facts in on June 11, FDA held this public meeting. It was two and a half hours long. It was somewhat tortured, torturous to listen to um, where you could ask questions and they were talking about their fair PMTA process. And they talked about a number of things in that process and how they were going about reviewing all these PMTAs. Um, one of the things that they, they made, they made a number of things clear. Um, one of them is that, um, they, uh, were had triaged all of the big tobacco and Jules applications on applications that came in early, such as August, and they put them in a separate queue. Uh, then as it relates to all of the other smaller manufacturer applications, they randomized the review process for those applications. So it didn't matter how substantial your application was or how unsubstantial it was. Uh, apparently you were just in the in the queue wherever uh, the, the computer puts you. Um, They also made an interesting admission, which is that they would not be able to review all of the applicant PMTAs by September 9, but they said they would review the uh, large company applications and make those decisions. Why? Because they said once they made those decisions, it would have the greatest impact on public health because those products they claim were ubiquitous in the marketplace. And so whether they gave them thumbs up or thumbs down, It didn't matter, it was gonna have the greatest impact, which is why they were being prioritized. Seems rational, at least a rational way to approach it. Um, And they said they would continue to review the uh, other applications, everybody else's, after September 9, continuing to use their enforcement discretion. Uh, And then they were asked that one question about long-term studies. If you remember, Um, they said, they were asked, what if a PMTA does not have product-specific long-term data? And they said, well, that's okay. They said, that's okay. You know, you can rely on public data. So long-term studies are not a requirement and you can rely on public data. Pretty clear statement. They said a bunch of other stuff, but those key facts are or statements are important because virtually none of them have come to pass, right? Why is that? Well, two weeks later, on June 23, the acting commissioner, uh, Janet Woodcock, was called before Congress uh, in front of the oversight subcommittee. Now, what's interesting is that hearing, I think had basically 48 hours notice, but they were planning the hearing for a while because they had a really slick video that they had prepared with with kids in it, directly targeting acting commissioner, Janet Woodcock, and imploring her to get rid of all flavors and telling her it was her responsibility and then, of course, the haranguing by committee members about how she had to deny Jule's applications, how she had to deny all flavored applications—like it was—and and and her her performance there, frankly, in my opinion, was 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 awful, just just awful. Uh, she didn't defend the FDA's process. She didn't defend the FDA's employees. And at one point, she didn't. <clears throat> she had, she she admitted she didn't know what tip sack was. So, what happened after that? Um, What I've learned is that very simply, they have all hell broke loose, frankly. She did not like what happened at that hearing um, and got personally involved. And within a few short weeks, the order came down from from her that the FDA had to change, the Office of Science had to change its review process, right? And on July 9, they wrote a memo and they said, We're right, we're doing this because the acting commissioner told us to do it, right? We have to change our entire process. We have to come up with a new plan. And the goal now is to get rid of all the applications that we can by September 9, even though that was completely inconsistent with what the Office of Science had just laid out only a month ago.
1: Right, right? and this is what's exposed, actually, FDA, uh, at least when it comes to some of the court action that's been going on, because they changed the goalposts so significantly.
0: Yeah, when I saw that memo, it jives so clearly with what I had learned that I was like, I was like, okay, this is exactly what happened. Uh, and now we see it in black and white. And I frankly have to believe that longtime staffers at the FDA, who have been committed to this process, right? Government, government people are bureaucrats are very process oriented, right? They have been working this PMTA process for years now. And and then in particular, they've been working through the applications or had been working for, for you know nine months already or more, nine to 11 months. To have somebody come in at the last minute and, to, and tell them from top down, you're gonna change the process. You're gonna renege basically on everything you just said publicly a month ago, <clears throat> because I wanna get rid of of as many flavored applications as possible. There's no other rationale. Right. There wasn't a deadline. FDA had already said, no, there's not a deadline of September 9. Um, and so that's why, you know, litigation is going to be extremely important in reviewing and in, in addressing this issue. I'm concerned that the case by case, the appeal by appeal approach will never get to this issue. will never get to the core of what really happened uh, because and, and FDA likes it that way right? They like having everything being done on the merits of one particular application uh, under one set of of laws that that are being interpreted by one set of judges. Uh, And they're comfortable to live with that. At the same time, I have to think that FDA knew that this change was going to lead to significant litigation. Um, And and frankly, um, that could be one reason why they made it clear in that July 9 memo. That this was forced upon them by the acting commissioner.
1: Well, certainly, yeah. Uh, if uh, if the bureaucrats are being held hostage by the leaders in the office, that might have been a cry for help uh, there. Tony, look, this is fantastic. I'm I'm so happy that you guys are back up and running uh, fully and and having such Thank an you. impact. Yeah, it's really it's really important. I think for the industry, we've always valued having you guys as a resource. You know, for us at least, to talk to our audience to let them know what's going on because, you yeah. know, quite frankly, there's, you know, uh, there's a dearth of, uh, good people that are out there, uh, fighting on behalf of APING.
0: Well, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. And it, it, it has been difficult. I, and, um, um, and, and this is the last thing anybody would want to have gone through. Right. Um, especially since we were really, really hitting, uh, hitting our stride. Um, you know, going from being able to be in 40 states, lobbying in 40 states to having to just pull contracts back because the money was drying up, but also during COVID there was no lobbying going on, right? I mean, so it didn't make sense to us from a from a physical perspective or a fiduciary perspective that we can't keep just paying state lobbyists to do nothing. And so those were difficult conversations, but we had them all, right? And um, uh, And we were able to get to a point where, we could we we could move forward, like I said, we had to retrench, but we're going to focus on kind of the core competencies, and this vape tax issue was one of those. And um, uh, and we're looking forward to being able to do do more on 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 the, the on supporting others in 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 using, for example, this economic impact analysis. We're going to be able to roll out some uh, tax specific. Economic impact tools um, for for states um, because we know more tax bills are going to come and we're going to need to be able to show those states what impact it's going to have on their on their on their own on their own budgets. Um, we're looking for we're also looking at this larger question in terms of litigation. Brent, uh, like I said, the case by case approach may work for those individual companies may ultimately result in something that's broader but it won't necessarily result in broader relief. Uh, I, I personally, and you know, I've, I've been a lawyer forever, it seems like now, but uh, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking through kind of how we might be able to pursue a broader claim. And we're still examining that very closely uh, and looking for kind of the right, uh, right strategy to get that done. But even if we do, um, honestly, I'm not sure we have the funds to carry that off. Um, so we've got the right teams of, of lawyers that could, could attack this um, and ultimately put FDA, I think, in a very difficult position. Uh, I think we have the right theories. Uh, right now, we're trying to figure out whether or not we have the, the the financial resources to make it happen.
1: So Tony, I was gonna ask you what happens next, but I think you just gave us uh, a, a pretty good view for what's happening next. Uh, importantly, where can people go to help? Well, look. I mean, it, it, it's very simple. I mean, everything
0: that associations do, they need to have uh, financial support. Um, the other thing they can do is they can kind of respond to calls to action. They can go to the the website uh, and 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 look for information. Um, for example, this economic impact analysis is on there. You can actually go in there and put in your own state or legislative district. So, just keep following us keep following um, the other associations that are working this issue uh, because there is important information that's coming out um, and we're going to, as I said, um, kind of uh, continue to do our best to make sure people know what what they need to know and also to do our part in, in, in leading the fight.